Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. On the show today, we're revisiting toilets, and this time we're venturing to Bambui in Cameroon, which is in Central Africa. I can see a smile on your face, Jake. (laughs) Because I know how much you enjoyed our human waste episode last week. I I did have a lot of fun with that episode, I'm not going to lie. But today we'll be hearing about a toilet system designed by three first-year engineering students at UTS. And you'll love where the idea initially came from, Ellen. A music festival, funnily enough. I guess it does make some sense as those places do have some of the worst toilets I've ever seen. (laughs) Yes, and if you're a guy that's saying that, think about how times are by like 10 for chicks. Okay. (laughs) Uh, We're also going to be asking, what is community energy? There's a lot of talk about getting our renewables to 100%, which isn't impossible. But what does community energy play in getting us to that point? But up first, it's time to hop on the bus and go to work. But it's the weekend. While I'm sure we'd all love to take the magic school bus to either school or work, it's not an option for us just yet, although I am interested in finding out how sustainable that might be. But for now, there are a couple of options. A normal bus, train, driving the car, walk if you're lucky. So how do you get to work? Well, I went to the streets to find out. Transport, public transport, trains basically. By bus. I just live nearby, so I just come by a walk. I walk to work. Commute via train. Just by walk. I cycle. And why do you take that type of transport? Because it's uh, faster and more economical. Because I think I, I hate buses and trains, and it gives me fresh air, and it's fun, and you know, you get the speed around little corners and feel like you've had a bit of fun. Yeah, I love to drive cars. <laughs> If I can drive, I will drive. No, I'd, I'd always walk. By the sounds of it, everyone is doing it differently. But which way is the worst for the environment? If you go uh, from top to bottom, private car, followed by train, bus and trams and all of those things, down to cycles and then walking. That's Lena Thomas. She's an associate professor from the Faculty of Design, Building and Architecture at UTS. There's two parts to it, of course. One is, of course, the mode of transport and the other is the length of the trip. But if you were to consider for the same trip length, then travel by private car would be the most carbon-intensive mode of transport. And that's taking into account the fact that probably many, many trips might involve a little bit of car share or things like that. And, of course, right at the other end of the scale, if you cycle to work or you walk to work, that would be your zero-carbon mode of transport. So in between that comes public transport. Those being mostly buses and trains. Now, Lena mentioned that trains are, in fact, worse than buses, which I thought was the other way around. So why are they worse? 
there's a range of intensity factors that are applied based on occupancy of the public transport over the time of day, etc. And the fact that, say, for example, in Sydney, we've got trains that run off electricity and many of our buses are natural gas, which actually puts our trains slightly above our buses in terms of the carbon intensity that we apply it. So when I went to the streets, most people were keen to commute on public transport or uh, cycling around where they could. But does that mean everyone's thinking about green transport? Well, yes and no in different sorts of ways. And I suppose um, in our study, while we were looking at census data on one level, we were also looking at surveys of individual buildings. We did find that people were keen to tell us about how they were using the new cycleways or uh, uh, using the facilities within a building to help them. Others were very much more interested in, as you would expect, convenience and the time takes to get there. And in that context, it would be a case of going by car because the choices, it would be a much more circuitous trip if you had to travel, um, switching a number of modes of transport just in order to use public transport. As well as looking at the carbon cost of getting to work, Lena and her team are also looking at what happens once you get there. Tackling energy emissions in buildings as well as in transport are some of our easy ways to think about how we can reduce carbon emissions for our city. And so in that sense, both of them have, um, or they lend themselves to that question. And we looked at two buildings in two different locations. So we picked a building in the CBD in um, Sydney, as well as another building in Macquarie Park. Both these buildings were pretty similar in terms of the kind of workforce, as well as the, the kind of office layout out even the office density of number of people within within the space, etc. And also quite well connected when you think about their access to public transport in terms of buses as well as trains. So the, the one in Macquarie Park area was very close to the Northride train station. So think about the place where you work. What things inside the building are using energy? Or what things are attached to some sort of grid to power them? There might even be some things consuming a whole lot of energy that you might not be aware of. So when you think about emissions that come from a building and when you think about a workplace, um, there's energy that's consumed for air con, there's energy for lighting the place, there's energy that's consumed for the lifts, energy that goes into all of the plug loads in an office space, which would be computers and photocopiers and coffee machines and all of those sort of things. And there is a standard methodology that is used to calculate that energy in terms of a per square meter per annum number that then is converted into equivalent carbon emissions. So that covers the whole gamut of energy that's consumed in that lettable area for that office building. Now, your place of work might be somewhere smaller, a small office. You might work from home. Uh, It might not be as big as these office spaces that Lena is referring to. But if you think about how many people are working in these places and how many times a week, how many hours they spend in commute, it's got me thinking, is the commute or are these buildings more carbon efficient? The emissions from the building Uh, were greater than the commuting emissions from those buildings. But what we found 
interestingly, was that as the efficiency of buildings increases, and this is actually where a lot of tension is at the moment, the slice of the pie that comes from commuting emissions increases. That is, as the building side gets more efficient, it becomes really important to talk about the commuting emissions. And that's probably also going to be a greater matter as we move to things like renewable energy to offset um, the emissions of the building. The other thing that uh, we also found which was quite interesting or um, was the fact that when you look at the results of the building in Macquarie Park or even the census data that comes out of Macquarie Park, despite having the train station, the people in that location, only 20% of them or less were using public transport and a significant group were still using cars to get there. And the reason for that is something we talked about earlier, the difficulty of getting um, the right connectivity. So the fact that you just have the, the closest train station doesn't in itself make you catch a train. It 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 relates to network connectivity and at the moment that's something that's only present in the CBD location. So as buildings move to locations other than the CBD, if we don't have the supporting infrastructure to give those other locations good network connectivity in terms of choices for public transport, it doesn't really translate into the best results. So if you got a a five-star energy building in the city and you were relocating it into another location, you might actually find a half-star energy drop in its overall impact because of its location. Lena Thomas, Associate Professor from the Faculty of Design, Building and Architecture at UTS. On the topic of commuting, and I'm not just talking about the commute to work, I'm really bad in terms of driving unnecessarily, as in I live about a five-minute walk away from the train station, so it's really easy for me to just walk up and hop on the train. Um, But also in my suburb, they only come every half hour, so I have to plan very time-specific, and half the time the trains are delayed, so of course I'm going to drive sometimes. Me too. My house is out in the bush, so I have to climb between trees to get to where I need to go. <laughs> I thought I saw you in lunchtime. <laughs> Just like scaling the trees. Yeah, that was you. If you see them in the CBD, that's me. I, I'm probably in the same boat as you. Like I've got public transport that I can commute to work on, which is awesome. But the rest of the suburb is a bit of a public transport black hole. So if I need to go to the shops, it's straight in the car for me. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. And last week, we did a lot of scrounging through the world of human waste, but we're not done just yet. You may have used a portal loop before. It's the toilet that stores your waste in the bottom, then every so often gets emptied out. But have you ever sat on a toilet that uses compost? Uh, the idea that we had, it was um, originally it was inspired from Falls Festival down in Tasmania at Marion Bay. It was the first time they tried at the festival. They just had the normal portaloos, which are hovered as always. And then they also had these new compost holders that they put in. Just what I kind of got from using them there is just they were more hygienic than the portaloos I found. They didn't smell. They were easy to put up and put down and get get rid of. And they also had a beneficial byproduct opposed to these portaloos too. Falls Festival, not the first place you think of when designing toilets for remote Africa. 
However, these three first-year engineering students found the festival somewhat enlightening. Ellis Sakuras, first-year engineering student. Bill Sittis, first-year engineering student. Goran Benko, first-year engineering student. The toilets are built above these huge tanks, just where, of course, you do your business and where you put... And then you do it all in there, and after each use, you just have a cup of um, just wood chips, and you just put that in over it. So the wood chips as well, obviously, it smells just like... smells like wood, it covers the smell too... And then after that, they'd take all of that out and leave it, leave it to form compost. Usually, can be six months or whatever. They just try and keep the moisture out, and that's when it does, does start the transformation from that pathogen-infested excreta into the compost. So it was from when you go in there, it looks like a regular toilet. You wouldn't know the difference. And then, for our design, how we changed it a bit to suit Bambury was called the fossil alternator. So it's a double alternating pit design. So you'd have one toilet and you'd have two pits. You'd constantly use one pit excrete into it. After each use, you'd put in the organic mixture, soil, wood ash leaves, whatever. And then when you fill that pit up, then you'd move the slab over just with the squat hole over to the next pit and then cover that pit to form compost. So then while you're using that pit and it fills up and everything else, you've got the pit next to you forming compost. So you can kind of have just an endless cycle of just alternating pits. So this project you put together was done through the EWB challenge. What is that exactly? Well, the Engineers Without Borders Challenge is a project that you have to do within the first year um, as an engineering student. And there's about 8,000 students um, throughout Australia and New Zealand which have to do it. And um, you come up with an idea to like help people in third world countries. Um, this year focused um, mainly on Cameroon, a small village in Bambui. And there we just had to come up with the different ideas for like sanitation, water filtration, and um, we had to like write a report. And then from there, if you got if you were if it was good enough, it would be picked to be then presented in front of um, other people. And then they were. And my name is Goran Benko, and we will be representing the University of Technology Sydney in this year's 2015 EWB Challenge. I'd like for you to imagine being part of a family living in a rural area of a developing nation. More specifically, a small village located to the northwest region of Cameroon called Bambui. Imagine you and your children using undeveloped latrine such as this one. You're 60% more likely to contract diarrhea. To put this in perspective, 1.5 million people die every year of diarrhea. 90% of which are children under the age of five. These latrines do not solely affect your family, but they are dug so deep that water contamination affects your entire community. This problem shows no signs of tattooing. As when we were there down at the national finals, they, just an example of some other group's ideas which didn't fare so well was like there was a lot, what a lot of people wanted to do was to try and change the ventilation system because they'd always do a lot of cooking in their huts and they'd just have open wood fires and everything there'd be a lot of smoke in there smoke inhalation is never good for anyone and their ideas were to have just totally self-contained fires have their own gas stove and vent it all out and just pretty much just like close off the flame area and then had a person out there from bamboo and one thing he even just said to them was like oh well when, when people come home and they want to sit around the fire and talk about their day and everything else and that idea do you want to kind of like vol them from that take that part out of their culture and they're like in a way, like the idea was great, but it just didn't gel well with them. So to try and make the design work, we did have a pretty decent implementation plan, which Bill can fill you in on. The idea was to start building them in the schools. Because obviously, if you target younger children, they're going to grow up using this new system because they've never seen anything like this before. So if you start it in the schools, then obviously, like I said, they're going to grow up 
knowing how to use it, what the advantages are, and it's just going to accelerate adoption rates. And the other way we came up with was um, marketplace. the marketplace. So the Bambui market, it's like a central business unit of Bambui, if you want to call it that. So we wanted to put in some examples of the crops, which were using this byproduct to show the benefits of using the fossil alternative. So then all the people can see, oh, this is good. It can give me better crops, more money, and then the benefits just roll in from there. So this was initially done as a first-year engineering project. Is there actual scope for a system like this being properly implemented into these communities, or is it yeah. what? Well, when we when we were there, and we presented our idea at the finals. So they did have the head of the Tuba Council, which is the main council for the region from yeah. Bamboo. So he was there. He's very involved with Bamboo. He wanted to be there. And then they also had another lady who's part of Reignite. And Reignite have been around in Cameroon and Bamboo too for many years now. They're just a um, not-for-profit UK organisation. And so they came over there as well just to see what these ideas are like. And from what um, them being there, they wanted to see what ideas we would have. There's not like a guarantee just like, oh, next year there'll be a fossil alternative there. But they've kind of shown that just your kind of chain of thought's a great way to go. Keep doing what you're doing. It's a very practical idea. And they'll obviously look into implementing it, though. Another whole process behind that as well is maintenance of these systems to ensure that yeah. if you put them into place, that the people are going to use them correctly and that they can okay. continue to function. Yeah. Is that something else you had to take into consideration when you were... Well, we also talked a lot of solutions for that, um, and we came up with flyers as well just to have um, basically picture instructions, so not too much writing, but more just so that the people know the basics. And also, like we said, we implement it through the, high, the schools. So if we teach the children at the schools how to use it properly, um, it's pretty much already implemented, and then they can show their parents how it's done. Mm. Actually, and even on that, they already organized monthly cleanup campaigns, like as our... Part of the council on that. Yeah, part yeah, of the council. Yeah. So we thought we can even use <clears throat> these campaigns to promote the benefits of using our design. So systems already in place. They're already doing these monthly things so why not add one extra bit of information like even prior to yeah. it even being built there so that way when the day comes it being built they already know what it is why it's there and what kind of stuff it can do for the community yeah and you were saying at the beginning this idea was somewhat inspired by what they're using at falls yeah. do you think that these systems could be used elsewhere like domestically like here yeah. like in rural areas or like you know maybe even introduce them into definitely. more metro yeah. areas i reckon they could definitely be not like say as far as like in the city goes probably not there's not <laughs> enough room <laughs> but like say like even suburban areas like mate even though like the size of some of these houses around here even in surrey hills mate, you could put one in your backyard by all means but it's just the other end of the spectrum is that you've got all this compost this beneficial byproduct you've got to have somewhere to use it so that's like i guess if you're a farmer or be you're a big fan of your garden and your veggies it'd be great for you but the toilet isn't for everyone. It's for, of course, those who live in more rural areas where they do need the benefit of the, the compost and stuff like that. So the design has limited itself in a way, but we've kind of honed in on that one demographic that we'd aim it at. Though. And it goes back and to one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. Yeah. Like we can't put a toilet we use here in Cameroon and we can't use a toilet we yeah. designed for Cameroon in yeah. Sydney. Not just that. I mean, the materials that we would be using here would be different. We have, we're more advanced in the sense of our technology. So we'd use different materials um, just to also keep the moisture out. In Bambui, we try to use local materials. So, of course, keeping the moisture out is always limited in that sense when they use bricks to lay the foundation in that sense. So... Oh, 
three first-year engineering students from UTS. When you think about where your power's coming from, most of us, particularly in urban areas, are connected to some sort of electrical grid. This is what powers things in our homes, like our fridges, our lights and our computers. The issue of power and energy is one that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment, where more and more people are thinking about renewables and how we can use natural resources as a means for power. A new report coming from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS details that Australia could transition to 100% renewable energy by 2030, but not without community energy. But what is community energy and why is it so important? Nikki Eisen is a senior research consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures and an expert on community energy. Community energy projects come about because a group of people, whoever they are, decide that they want to do something around energy within their community. And that can be a climate action group, it could be people from the local chamber of commerce, it could be a group of farmers getting together to try and address some of their uh, energy issues. One of the reasons I'm motivated around this is that I think that we need to be showing our politicians that action on climate change is urgent and that the communities are willing to step up and lead and they need to follow. So I'm I'm motivated by uh, a political dimension to this. Yeah, because when I hear something like community, it kind of links with me what we can do collectively to instigate change or instigate something for the better and also what we can do ourselves in terms of coming up with more renewable energy practices. So what exactly are involved in these projects or or what what is the physical infrastructure that people are using as more viable community energy alternatives? We see two main types of projects at the moment in Australia. So we've had two flagship community-owned wind farms, so Hepburn Wind in Victoria and Denmark Community Wind in Western Australia. And they're sort of medium scale, like Uh, over a megawatt so uh, Hepburn Wind is just over four megawatts Uh, and they're quite large projects they're at the edge of the community physically uh, and then they're run by a community group in the case of Hepburn a cooperative in the case of Denmark a company but but still with a large degree of community ownership that sort of was the first wave of community energy projects here in Australia and really inspired lots of people There are now close to 80 community energy groups across Australia. Most of them at the moment are looking at solar projects. So there's a group in Sydney called Pingala. They are partnering with Young Henry's Brewery in Newtown to put solar on the roof of Young Henry's. And what they'll do is they'll uh, go out to the community and ask if the community would like to invest to raise the funds to put the solar on the roof. And then... Young Henry's over a certain period of time will pay for the electricity generated and then that money earned will pay back the community investors so that they get a return on their investment. So it's a a way communities can be financially involved in increasing the uptake of renewables and the way local businesses can be involved in better connecting with their local community. I guess that also ties into why you're involved in community energy at the same time. When did you start working within the realm of community energy? I went and saw a guy called Herman Shear speak uh, when I was back at university. He is called the 
father of the German renewable energy policy. And if you know anything about renewables, you know that Germany's leading the world in renewables. So he's a fairly influential guy. Unfortunately, he's died now. But he talked about renewable energy as fundamentally different from the way we do energy now. And that's because it's based on a market of technology, not a market of fuel, because the fuel is free. The fuel is the sunshine and the wind and the waves. And there can be lots of different types of technologies that harness those free fuels. They can be really simple or they can be really complex. You can do a solar cooker or you can do a solar PV panel. And that's contextual. And that means that renewable energy is fundamentally more democratic because more people are able to access and benefit from renewables than anyone ever could from fossil fuels because fossil fuels have to be large, whereas renewables don't have to be large. So that got me really excited. I did a bunch of university uh, assignments about it. I did two honours theses on community energy, one from an engineering perspective and one from a, a social science perspective. Uh, I'd visited about 30 community energy projects uh, in a self-funded study tour through Europe. And then I came back and with a friend, we co-founded the Community Power Agency. Yes, yeah, so talk more about what exactly you do with the Community Power Agency. Sure. So Community Power Agency was co-founded by myself and a woman called Jara Hicks. We established it to grow a vibrant community energy sector here in Australia. And we do that in three main ways. We do training and capacity building for community energy groups on the ground. So we take the best knowledge of what works and train up new groups in being able to do that. And when new groups are trying to innovate, we talk through some of the constraints that are available and some of the opportunities and what, how they might be like water, flow around the obstacles that, that are in their way because the energy system and the wider society or, or legal structures within Australia are not set up for community enterprises like community energy projects. So that's one, one part of our work. The second area of our work is around advocacy and policy development. So we're doing this great project called Renewables for All, which is looking at what are the business models and policies that enable all Australians, no matter where they live or how much they earn, to be able to benefit from the clean energy transition. Uh, we've also just uh, been involved in uh, the launch of Get Up and Solar Citizens Homegrown Power Plan, which sets up a, out a policy blueprint for how we transition to 100% renewables. So, yeah, a lot in that sort of policy and advocacy space, mainly because we need to change the rules of the game if we're going to enable communities to really participate and benefit from this energy transition. Then our third area of work is around information sharing and sector-wide coordination. One of the amazing things about the community energy sector is its grassroots. These are communities, groups of people in local communities coming together. But it means that lots of groups are trying to face the same problems uh, and address them and they're not necessarily connected to each other. So we coordinate uh, an organisation called the Coalition for Community Energy, which is a coalition of now 70 member organisations. and the purpose of that coalition is to really facilitate collaboration, so where people are trying to do similar things, uh, and provide information sharing so that uh, a group in Cairns can learn from what a group in Adelaide is doing. And so you mentioned there what you do within the agency, you know, advocacy or education to talk about the definitely possible 
notion of reaching 100% renewables, which there's a whole lot of talk about this in, I guess, even the more recent years. But given the work that you've done in the past 10 years up until this point, in 10 years from now, where do you think we'll stand? Or where are you hopeful that we'll be in terms of community energy powering renewables? I think we're going to see community energy take off. It's been a slow process. So when we first founded Community Power Agency, Hepburn and Denmark Wind just started operating that year. Um, They hadn't quite started operating. It's taken to this point to build to where we have now 30 operating community energy projects. I see us getting to hundreds of community energy projects in the next 10 years because We've put in the groundwork around what works and now that now the models that exist can be replicated and can be adapted by communities across the country. But we've also put community energy on the political agenda. And so what, we've, what we're seeing is suggested changes to the rules, uh, and by that I mean the literal rules of the energy market, but also the policy rules, um, that would remove the barriers, remove the roadblocks to community energy projects. And when that happens, there's so much passion and enthusiasm and skill within communities, it's really going to unlock and, and take off. I hope that within the next 15 years we can see almost every community across Australia having some kind of community energy project and I hope that we can see many communities who've taken themselves and take on a journey to get to a point where they're 100% renewable powered. Nikki Eisen, Senior Research Consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information on what you've heard today, head along to our website at 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. And you can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Ellen Liebeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week.